Hey everyone, it's Amber Love. You're listening to Vodka O'Clock Podcast on AmberUnmasked.com. And uh, don't forget that uh, sometimes we're an explicit website and podcast, and this is probably one of those times because we're going to be talking about some world content, um, some fictional content, some things that uh, involve the the deep, sorted, dark worlds of uh, like the sex industry and whatnot. So um, joining me today to talk about fun stuff like that is Josh Stallings for the first time. Hey, welcome. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It's wonderful. Yeah. So, I mean, we met a while ago at, at uh, the, the lovely BoucherCon bar. Yes. Where all the coolest people hang out. It was amazing, I have to say, because I didn't actually get to the convention, <laughs> and I had the best time. You actually went to the best part of the convention. Bye-bye. That's what I heard. <laughs> yeah, that's what everybody said. And it was a, it was a really good after-party kind of bar because it was massive. Usually, you know, like some of the Comic-Cons, they're in hotel bars, and it's really, really cramped, and you have to sort of elbow your way up to the you know, it, through a big long line so you can finally wait a half an hour at the bar for a drink. And this wasn't like that. It was so spacious. So um, it, I don't know. You know, I didn't hear very good things about that particular convention because it was in Albany and people said it was the convention was not great. But the after party was definitely happening. Even breakfast was happening when we were when we were out for breakfast. My, there's a, a writer, Chris F. Holmes, is a friend, and, and he always calls it the gathering of the tribe. Mm. And when I think of it that way, then it's never a bad convention. It's always cause it's the only time I get to see my tribe and hang out. So I really don't give a shit where we are. If we're in Albany, we're in Albany. If we're this next year, we're in Long Beach. That's cool as anything else. Yeah, that sounds lovely. But it was it was pretty awesome because here, you know, I had been um, you know pestering you on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, you know, so I walk in, recognize you. I'm like, oh, my God, hey. And never thinking anybody would know who I am. But uh, so we hit it off and just hung out in these gigantic throne-like chairs, leather, tall executive things. And um, uh, so everybody in the world seemed to want to come up and meet you and I thought that was pretty hilarious that I was just sitting there I'm like um should I be like taking a ticket to talk to you <laughs> I don't I don't re- I don't react to the world that way so I don't notice it I've been told that I'm rather dense it was hilarious I enjoyed it so much <laughs> I was I, I couldn't decide if I was going to be the gun mall or if I was your actual like bodyguard driver <laughs> yeah I I for some reason, what I do has made impact in the right crime writing world. And I don't, I feel very blessed for that, that there's been within, I think I published the first book in 2011, so it's been a short run, and suddenly a lot of people know who I am. And I think that's half and half, half luck and half preparation. I spent a lot of years writing and working in screenplays and all sorts of other things before I put a novel out, I think, and it, it hit the scene because everyone hadn't heard of me. They suddenly go, who the fuck's this guy and where'd he come from? And where he came from was a lot of years sitting alone in the dark typing. You know, I, I think something I think about the being able to, people being able to publish their own work that's been a problem is I've seen authors that I like a lot publish too early, able to get books out before they're really ready. 
and they haven't been tested. And I feel like that can hurt your career a lot because people then start to think of you as that early writer instead of who you're going to become. Before my first book came out, there's there's a crime writer, Charlie Houston, who beat the hell out of me with that book. And a, <laughs> right. and a fantasy writer, Tad Williams, who also did. The two of them just beat the shit out of me. And it formed a much better writer out of me because I'm willing to take that. I'm willing to go, okay, if it's going to make the book better, kick the shit out of me again. Let's go. So are you talking about Beautiful, Naked, and Dead, or are you talking about a different book? The first book, Beautiful, Naked, and Dead, yeah. Okay. So... How different was that from your original incarnation? It's a different book. It's, it's the intention's the same. The opening never changed. So who Moses is didn't change. The idea that I originally had is I, I thought, what is the most, like, what's the most dangerous man alive is a man who doesn't care if he lives or dies. And so I wanted to write a book about a guy who didn't care if he lived or died and starts them trying to commit suicide. So that part stayed true throughout. But there's a draft early on where one of them, I think it was Tad, called me up and just said, so tell me the story because I don't get it. I just read your draft. I don't understand the story. And I couldn't tell it to him. And I realized I hadn't really thought it through well enough. I had a bunch of scenes at work, but I hadn't thought through who did what to whom. Okay. And... um. Now, if I remember correctly, you're the type that sits down and starts typing immediately and not necessarily a build a bulletin board filled with post-its type of person. Yeah, I, I start at page one and I type until the story's done. And then I start rewriting. Okay. So um, for those not familiar, I haven't heard of Beautiful, Naked, and Dead, um, which if you're following me on Twitter, you should have. Uh, the main character is Moses McGuire, and as Josh had explained, he's this um, – at the point when we meet him, he's already given up. But, I mean, you know, he has a life. It's just not a great life. Um, you know, sort of, sort of like that first lethal weapon – because, like, this obviously was, like, is an action book. This is, you know, so it's just, like, all of the action greats, like the diehards and the lethal weapons and, um, you know, all that stuff. So thinking, well, you've read Dwayne Swarzynski's books, right? Yeah. I think. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So the unkillable Charlie Hardy is, is Dwayne's character. And so when I met Moses in my head, um, first of all, I didn't picture him white, which is interesting because I know he's supposed to be, like, Irish. But I, I, uh, I don't... I don't know anything about L.A., so I was trying in my brain to figure out, like, where the towns would be and what the demographics of the town neighborhood would be and stuff like that, and I got everybody wrong <laughs> because the, it's as you're going through the book, descriptions start coming in. So, um, so, you know, so Moses is already, like, hates everything except for this one person. He has this one friend. Yeah. And, you know, uh, so to to pull at the heart so, so hard, how did you channel that? Is that something that you felt ever? Oh, yeah. Because, I, I mean, I know that you've got – we're going to get into your shady past. I want to hear about it. But I want to know, like, how you decided to to put so much pain of this it, character down, down on the pages. It's – I mean, part of it is just straight-up honesty. To be honest, I've lived my life as a manic depressant, and I go back and forth. And so I've had a lot of depressed years. I've had 
I had a real fucked up childhood and I had that that was a lot. So a lot of stuff that wound up as a man who was depressed. I could really channel that and understand that. I was really angry a lot. Um, when I drank, I was not a good drunk. I was a bad drunk. I would break things. So there's a lot I understood about him that comes straight from me and, and it was easy to transfer it to him. Um, I haven't had a friend killed like he did, but I can understand the feelings. I don't think I have to know everything to be able to write about it. Well, even, um, yeah, I mean, the, the way that his, his friend Kelly is killed is this gruesomely horrific way. And, uh, I kind of had always wanted to ask somebody how they're so gross. Like, I know you as a human being <laughs> and, and I, you know, and you're like this kind, wonderful person. It's like, how do you get such disgusting stuff out of your brain and say, this is what I'm going to do to this character? Part of it is I do a, is I'm aware of the world. I do a lot of reading of true crime and true things and I interview people. So there's a lot of me that understands this real world. The other part of me is. I knew that his rage had to sustain a whole novel. So what happened to his, the girl that was his best friend had to be dark enough and evil enough to sustain, give him enough anger to get through a book. So part of it was me understanding how humans are and what they do to each other. We can be very mean monkeys sometimes. And part of it was purely knowing it's what the story needed. If his girlfriend had been hit by a hit and run driver, we'd have a different book. If, you know, there's a whole lot of different books, but for him to be this ang as angry as he is throughout the book, it needed to be something horrific. Part of Moe's backstory, um, because when um, at, at this point he's a bouncer in a strip club, like we said, he's really suicidal, doesn't have any family to speak of. Um, but you do sprinkle in details seamlessly about, with like flashbacks, you don't even realize that they're happening. Like it's not a chapter break. It's not any kind of big break. It's all of a sudden um, he's thinking and he's thinking back to his shitty childhood with his, you know, drunk mother who was crazy evangelist and, um, you know, how he and his brother just needed to get the fuck out. Yeah. I... Um, and you had him, you had him go in the service, which is definitely one plausible thing um is that where you ended up did you ever do that never wound up in the service um but that's again part of plot is i needed to have him have a reason to know how to use guns and know how to do what he did and i wanted him to have gone through beirut which is a sort of forgotten war and we lost a lot of marines there and there was some, it was pretty horrific and we never talk about it and i thought well that age-wise would be the right thing for him to have gone through and the fact he stole his brother's ID and went in at 16, it's gave some understanding of who he was, how far he'd go, and how crazy his childhood was. I love there's a line that he said, my mother, my mother mixed equal parts the Bible and gin. Yeah. <laughs> it tells you so much about her. I mean, and you, you just describe her to the point like, um, you know, all the good torturous mothers of fiction like Carrie and um, Joan Crawford and you know yeah. there's there's the stuff that you 
you do that, uh, you know, all great writers give the advice of show, don't tell, which I have yet to figure out. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't know how you do this. <laughs> you've just, by the way, you've hit on a phrase that is my least favorite ever. I don't, yeah, because I, see, I don't, I don't really get it, and yet it's covered in every workshop I take. I, I think it's a bullshit statement, and I say this when people say that to me. I said, I'm a storyteller, not a story shower. If I was a story shower, I'd be doing interpretive dance. Oh, okay. Can I, can you do that for me? Yeah, I, I will do. Next time we're together? Next time we're together, I'll do some interpretive dance. That's, that would be story showing, but we are storytellers. <laughs> so when someone says, show, don't tell, I don't have any idea what it means. I'm clueless. Okay, I'm, I'm, I, I'm happy to hear this. Good, because I think it's a bullshit statement, and what happens is there are certain statements that go around, and everyone hear, hears them at a writer's conference, and then they say them, and then somebody else says them, and they become cliches that have no meaning. They're dead language, and when, I, when someone tells me something, I break it apart and try to figure out what the hell it is, and I go, oh, fuck. That means nothing. There's, I, show, don't tell. I have no idea what you're trying to tell me. It's, you know, a good part of the of the novel, Moses novels is what he's going on inside his head, and he's just telling us. He's not showing us. He's telling us. Right. And that's that's how I, I felt with the flashbacks, how it was just fluid and just train, just easy trains of thought that that's you were you were on his ride. Yeah, you were you. You never got off the Moses ride, um, which, you know, is a a great solid perspective that that's, you know, there was no change there. Um, and I mean, you know, for you guys, if you haven't read beautiful naked and dead yet, I mean, we're going to get into, you know, there might be some minor spoilers, but not, you know, nothing really. We're not giving away the, the, you know, any of the reveals or anything like that. Um, one of the, the interesting things though, that I, when I went over to this, uh, to this mystery writers workshop was, that they talked about giving a hateful person a dog. And Moses isn't a hateful person, but he's a violent person. And you give him a dog. (laughs) And it's like, he, and it was, it's just one of those things where he's like, you know, thinks that he is the most ill-equipped person to deal with any kind of life at all. Like you, you shouldn't give him a goldfish. And he, he, you know, ends up adopting the, the dog. Yeah, it's not any and, dog. It's a bull mastiff, which is a big fucking dog. <laughs> big, big, giant fucking dog. Um, and a lovable one. Like, you know, dopey, running through the park kind of dog. Um, you know, did would the book have been the same without the dog? No, and I, I to be honest, I wouldn't be the same without the dog. I, I raised the bull mastiff, and he was that dog. And... I've often thought that Angel, the bull mastiff in this story, who's a puppy when he gets him, so he's a, but they have huge paws and they're just messy and they're wonderful dogs, is who Moses would have turned out to be if his life hadn't been so rough. He's kind of a big, dopey puppy dog of a guy, but he's tough as hell and all these other things because of how his life turned out. So it's this other way of looking at him for me. Is going, he is like a bull mastiff, only a bull mastiff who went through hell, so he's now a junkyard dog. But there's that sweet part of him. I, I, I don't know that I could have written the book without him because it also is such a humanizing part of it. That part of the way Moses works for me, and I don't didn't intend this, and people have told me this after the fact, and then I start to see that it's true. 
since I write from the seat of my pants, I often don't see what I'm doing until I'm done with it, is that the reader is in a position to know more than Moses intellectually. So they're able to go, don't do that. Don't do that. Why are you so hard on yourself? Look, you can take care of a dog and he doesn't believe he can. Which gives some tension to the reader of what, like if he goes and does something stupid, you go, don't do it. Don't do it, you freaking idiot. You've done it before. But he's a character who can stumble into things. I don't know if that's making sense, but. Right. Um, Because like, you know, every time he's, uh, you know, he's taking the the amphetamines or whatever he's taking just to stay awake for a week, um, you know, to go chasing after the bad guys up and down the California coast. And, um, and you're like, you do, you want to, you want to tell him to like, you know, Hey, go to, go to the FBI here. What is your problem? And, you know, ease off just be, a little, come on, ease off a little. Yeah. You know, there just might be something, you know, you found, go, there's a nice beach house. Just go stay. <laughs> Have you read Philip Marlowe? No, I haven't read okay. it. I, read him. I mean, I, I know from TV. Okay. Raymond Chandler wrote, books that early on in my teen years just captured me. And there's a certain amount of that in this, in that what Philip Marlowe does, he's not at all like Moses, but what he does is he sort of stumbles along and stumbles into things and doesn't really solve cases by being Sherlock Holmes. He solves them by butting into enough situations and getting beat up enough times that he sort of figures it out. And I think there's a certain percentage of that with Moses, is that he stumbles into things, and he just is such a Viking about it, he keeps going and keeps tearing shit up and keep stepping into trouble until he solves the problem. So there's a, there's a certain amount of uh, Raymond Chandler that overshadows what I do. There's a certain amount of James Crumley, who if you ever read him, is James Crumley is my true idol as a writer. And there's a certain amount of James Crumley in here as well, who wrote about these just drunken madmen solving crimes. This brings up a really good point that I wanted to ask. Um, you you know when we think about somebody like Marlowe, yeah, you made Moses an ex-con bouncer in a strip club. You didn't you didn't go the PI route. You didn't go the cop, you know, who's been on the force for twenty years route, or washed up any. You know, he's just he doesn't have any of the inside um, tropes at that point that normally gets a, a plot going along when it comes to figuring out crimes, you know, he didn't, it, there's no politician, there's no cop, there's no agency. Um, I mean, there's the agency comes in once in a while, but they aren't helping. Right. <laughs> um, you know, usually it's a reporter. It's usually someone who's, who's going to based on their occupation already have ways to get inside information. And you made Moses, a bouncer. <laughs> what, like, how come, how come you opted to actually stick him in the club where the girls are instead of being, you know, a reporter that stumbles upon the crime scene or something? Part of it is, and this is, gets to the sort of the heart of some things, is I wanted to tell a story for guys like me. My older sister was a stripper. I spent time in strip clubs when I was a little kid. My father dated strippers. It's not a world that was foreign to me. And I wanted to write a book about people that it wasn't some foreign world they were being thrown into, but somebody from the inside looking from the inside out, if that makes any sense. But I wanted to tell stories 
And I still want to tell stories for people who are on, on the outside of the norm, who are living on the outside of what is considered normal culture. Because it's how I've lived most of my life. And I like a story that isn't from from the innocent coming in and looking at it going, oh, my God, what is this world? But from somebody who's lived in it and grew up in it and understands it and is allowing the audience to see it through the eyes of somebody who's jaded by it. Because I think you get a very different perspective of that world that way. You get to see his perspective on it, which is very different than the reporter who just walked into a strip club. I, I was thinking about it um, maybe more than somebody else would because on uh, on Twitter I, I follow a bunch of sex workers and it's a broad category if somebody's not quite familiar with what the term actually means. That could be – it could be somebody who works in a, a shop that sells sex toys and condoms to, uh, you know, prostitutes, to porn stars, to cam girls. So um, sex worker is a pretty big a blanket category for the industry. And, you know, there's it was just last night they're sort of campaigning that they want they want regulation. They don't want to be rescued. These people, because there's men, too, but it's mostly women. But, you know, because it's mostly women, they feel that that's why they're, you know, being put in jail instead of being regulated. Um Today, I think today's world might be different than things that you saw. It's, it is, and it's – in writing this, I spend a lot of time interviewing women. That's the other thing that I do is I do a lot of – and I write a lot of first-person first perspective. I went into, into strip clubs that were owned by the mob, and I had women tell me, you've got to stop asking questions. You're going to get yourself beat up. And – I didn't stop asking questions because I'm me. So I got to talk to a lot of women, and, and it took a while. The hard part is because in any kind of those situations, there's so much sexuality and flirtation and all that going on that's manufactured, in my opinion, most of it. But you've got to get past that to have an honest conversation. By the second book, it gets easier because I could bring in a book and give it to them to read and say, I'll come back after you've read something that I've written, and then we can talk. And would help me. But... I learned a lot from the women. I learned a lot of where things were at then and where things were at for them. And I know it's – the hard part is, is that people run into my work and think that it's a statement for all strippers, a statement for all this. It's Moses and the women he knows. And like you said, sex work is so broad a statement that they come from all sorts of perspectives. Um, each one of the Moses books, there's three of them, and each one of them gets deeper into the sex trade. The second one is about trafficking and trafficking of Russian girls. And it deals with that aspect, which is not a statement on all of prostitution, not a statement on all that all women are trafficked. It's just a statement on the women in that book. And it's something that legitimately happens. The, the FBI count for this year, I think, is up to like 168 busts or something. Yeah. No, it, it absolutely, in all my research, I was able to really find out how they were doing it and what was going on. And the third book deals with trafficking of, of really young women in America, where we're taking American girls and they're being trafficked. They're being kidnapped off the street, and there's something called gorilla pimping. I hate that term, where they beat a girl and rape her until she's in a position to do nothing else, and they will often then ship her out of state and put her in motels. And it's 
that is really happening too. And people don't, I mean, it's, the stuff gets uglier. And I was so angry by the third book, by all my research, that it's the angriest thing I've ever written. But the research makes me, it drives my anger as well. Because I don't think we're very fair to women. And I don't think that, I don't think what we've done to sexuality, I think sexuality is, for me, not for Moses, for me is one of the most sacred things we've got going. And to turn it into commerce is, is its own, has its own prices to be paid then. So has all the the research driven you socially to to do anything about it? Um, because, you're, you know, to have that much anger could be really hard to deal with. And I know one of our mutual friends, uh, Tommy Pluck, who's been on the show, Tommy does work with a group called Protect about exploited children. Um, and he, you know, puts together these crime anthologies to raise money for Protect. So, like, does anything come, like, compel you to just, you know, like we're saying, we're trying to not make it about being rescued, but is there, is there something that, you know, you felt that you needed to do after reading all this stuff? Yeah, I, I, my strongest tool, and I believe this, my strongest tool is my writing. And what it's compelled me to do is write these books. And by the third book, there's really a perspective in it that if you're going to be, it's the first time that he starts killing Johns and everyone else involved. And you start to get that if you're going to, if you are against the feeling of the book and what I hope it does is that if a man reads it and then goes and has sex with an underage girl, he realizes that's called rape. And whether or not he paid for it doesn't change the fact that he's been a rapist, in my opinion. And that is in strongly in the books. And so my best weapon that I've got, the best tool I've got to date is my writing. It's to try and write compelling stories that tell the truth that I feel is the truth people need to hear. Um, yeah like that how it's because i mean it's obviously there's you know we're talking about books with this subject matter and and speaking about how violent they are um and there are some really harsh critics and maybe they're not so well advised i'm not really sure where they get their information or what kind of studies they do but they think that the violent entertainment causes people to be more violent you know it's usually the video games um, or, you know, movies or whatever. So, I, I mean... Where do I fall on that? <laughs> you, well, I know where you fall on it. I know exactly where you fall on it. I'm wondering what you have to say about that I, to those people. Like, I don't get, believe that we, if we look at our species, I'm not convinced that I know what we read I don't think makes us more violent. I don't think what we see makes us more violent. Um, I think that all of those are shields for us not looking at why are we so violent as a culture. And I don't believe that those are the reasons that we're, that we're violent. Um, humans have been killing each other with rocks. I also have a, you know, it's my feeling on gun control when people get, you know, I wish we had no bullets in this country, but because I'm tired of seeing people get shot. But I also don't believe that that's the real core issue because, you know, they say, oh, after, after the thing happened up in, Santa Barbara and that young man shot all those people and everyone, we've got to control guns. I want half the people he killed were with knives. How are we going to deal with that? What we're not dealing with is a central issue that there's something where people feel life is disposable right now. There's something happening bigger as a culture 
And I think it has a lot to do with we have a culture and a government and a world that doesn't value human life even though it says it does. I can look at the way they actually treat people. They care more about unborn fetuses than they do about young people. They, well, yeah, they care more about corporations too. <laughs> yeah, and I don't, I don't think that's disconnected. I don't, I think the fact that we just gave the Supreme Court just gave corporations the right to have a religious opinion is really fucking scary. That a corporation can now say it's not going to give women the day after pill because they are more emotionally or religiously against it is really dangerous. I've said for years that, that Russia is a mafatocracy, is the term you use for a country run by the mafia, and we are a corporatocracy. We are not a democracy. We're run by corporations. Mm-hmm. And you can see it when the Supreme Court starts to agree with that, I get really afraid. That, so those are something about that is devaluing, back to your original questions, I think devaluing how we view human life. So who taught you, um, if you're, you know, you admit that your childhood was um, n- not like Leave it to Beaver. I'm <laughs> really surprised to hear this. Um, Josh, darling. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so who taught you the value of human life? I think it was one of the it was a value that got transferred through because although we grew up rough, we grew up with parents that were disappearing a lot because they're involved in the civil rights movement and they're involved in the peace movement and having parents that are very involved, it was a little confusing because they were Quakers who would come home and beat their kids. So that was a little odd. <laughs> it's a little different. It, it, there was violence in our home and yet they were out picketing for nonviolence. It was, it left a kid feeling strange, but instead of me taking on to that, the idea that then we should be violent, I took on to that, and went, yeah, but the core idea was right. You know, I used to say as a Quaker, I'm not a good Quaker, I'm much better Viking. I used to say when they would say, you have to turn the other cheek, I said, I'll turn it once, and if they hit me again, I'll knock them on the fucking floor. Mm-hmm. Because that's the kind of Quaker I was. I was not, my brother's a much better Quaker. There's other people who were raised better. I, I have my own bent on it. I'm clearly, but I did take on the human rights issue and realize growing up around them, and growing up around a lot of hippies, I did get that part of it made sense to me, and still makes sense to me. Well, I I figure that being surrounded by people, um, you know, during that era, during those, you know, you were you from out in California yeah. at the time. Yeah. So I just think life must have been incredibly different out there than you know Newark, um, where you know my folks are from, and. Um, you know, I think, I think we saw two very different civil rights um, perspectives. <laughs> like, you know, we were five minutes from the riots, and your folks, you know, you know, hiding us in the, you know, whatever, in the house in the suburbs, and you know, your folks were off probably picketing and yeah. leading marches and stuff. Um, completely different different backgrounds yeah at the during the same time (laughs) it was it was for me it was i mean i think for the country that where i grew up in northern california was the epicenter of you know the freak movement and it's also it's where moses comes from my writing comes from is i always felt because it was a counterculture that i was being raised in i felt that i was not part of the mainstream culture which i wasn't and there were clear divides back then i had old ladies come to me and say 
are you a boy or a girl? And they knew I was a boy. They just wanted, wanted to tease me about having long hair. And these are like, you know, 60-year-old ladies who should know better trying to hurt a child's feelings for having long hair. And Well, yeah, that goes on now. I equally bad would turn to old ladies and say, unless you want to fuck me, why do you care? Yeah, but but as a little kid saying fuck to an adult, I knew I was hurting their feelings. So we really had this this culture war going on, and you know the Moses stories and the other stories and things that appealed to me. The outsiders appealed to me because I grew up as an outsider, you know, a cultural outsider. What kind of jobs did you have growing up? I mean, to get to the point where now you're a you know a writer. Drove. Prime of your life. <laughs> I had, I had, I drove cabs. I've driven cabs. I've worked in pizza parlors. I've been a bouncer in clubs. I've, and then I had the blessed good luck of having a child very young at 21. I was in theater at the time, working in theater. And I had a child and got married and had a child at 21. And he is developmentally disabled. So I had a disabled child, and so I needed my wife to stay at home to take care of him because we needed a lot of go to therapies and all. And the blessed part about that was, was I stopped fucking around, and I got a job in film. I lied my way onto a film set. I got a job as an editor. And I really had to start a career younger than most people. Most people fuck around through their 20s. I never had that. So I've never understood things like the show Friends. When I look at all these 20-somethings sitting around bitching, I go, what the fuck are you talking about? I have no reference point for 20-year-olds who have nothing to do, who don't have a kid to take care of. So very early on, my job skills started. I, I got convinced someone to hire me as an assistant editor, and I just worked my way up. And I've been working as an editor ever since in film. And I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't had a kid young. I, you know, I think there's some people who that cripples them. For me, it strengthened me. It made me go, okay, i got to get my shit together fast because this little creature needs me. Well, as, uh, you know, as I said earlier, that Moses was an ex-con, and um, what, you know, what was your uh, rap sheet <laughs> before the child came along? Oh, you'd like to know that, would you? <laughs> I do. I'm so curious because, you know, was it just some juvenile record? I want, you know, and if you know, so between eighteen twenty-one, maybe something happened. I can't. I... Stealing cars. I can't lie, lie about any of it because I made a horrible mistake. Is that I wrote a memoir called All the Wild Children. I was going to ask about this. Anthony Award nominated. I mean, highly praised. Highly, highly praised. It's the only book in the Anthony Awards in my category that is published by a minor publisher. They're all major publishers, and I've got little snub nose publishing my book. So, yeah, All the Wild Children. So, you know, so. So. Give give the audible version of the scoop here. <laughs> I I did everything from creeping houses to selling pot to um, ran around with guns in the ghetto. I went to a ghetto high school, which is what interests me when you said you thought Moses was black. Is there's a certain amount of because in my formative years I went to a black ghetto high school. There's a certain amount of that culture that creeps into everything I write that I can see it. I can feel it in there because it's sort of at my formative years, I was going to black exploitation theaters watching Shaft and things like that. So that also has an impact on me. So, so we're in no way endorsing that you have a criminal record in order to be a good writer. No. You know, it's, it's just, it helps. I don't know that it helps or doesn't help. 
I mean, one of the things I've been told about my writing, I was told by several agents, is that I write too much for the outside culture and not enough for the mainstream culture because most people haven't been through what I've been through. So I don't know that it helps your writing career. I think living life and being aware of your life helps your writing career. Well, it might make you unhirable as anything else. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also, I might point out, dyslexic as hell. I was going to ask about that because you're not t too shy to talk about oh, it. Oh, no, I don't give a shit. I'm, I'm massively dyslexic. I was told when I was, I heard a doctor, I wasn't told by the doctor. The doctor told my mother while I was in the room that you have to just accept your son's dumber than other kids. He's not as graceful. He's going to be, he's going to be dumb and you'll have to live with that. And I just, for a lot of years I lived under my, my nickname for that, that feeling that I got about myself was called the dummy. I would feel like the dummy. Aww. And I went through a lot of life feeling like the dummy. And, and I had, I mentioned Tad Williams earlier, who's about the smartest guy I know. He's a fantasy writer, and he really is brilliant. And I used to say, Tad, why do you hang out with me? And he said, because you're one of the smartest guys I know. And I would not hear a word of that. He would say it, and I wouldn't hear it. I spent eight hours getting my brain tested this last two years ago. And it was more than eight hours. It was two eight-hour days. They did all of this cognitive testing and trying to figure out what was going on with my head and what was I was having some memory issues, so they did want to do a full workup. The doctor afterwards said, I don't understand how you work. He said, you have deficits in areas that are so low, I can't imagine you could even hold a job. And you have all the rest of your areas are off the chart genius. And there's nothing in between. Like, I have no in-between area, which really builds me to do only creative jobs really well. I, there's a lot of jobs I'd never be any good at. I've been lucky that I've done creative jobs where it operates at the edge of my brain where, where the real brains are working. But I, I read slowly. When people send me books to do blurbs on now, which is really exciting to have somebody do, just freaking love that. But when they send me a book, I have to warn them. I said, it's going to take me a while to read it because I'm really slow. And I still read slow. But one of the other wonderful things about dyslexia is because if you scan reading, you jumble the words up, you have to read every word in order. Mm -hmm. So I don't skim read. I, I can't physically skim read. So if I read a book, I've read that book. I've read everything they were doing in there. So I think that's helped me, you know. My poor, poor, beleaguered, wonderful wife, who is my first editor, has to go through my first drafts and fight her way through a dyslexic first draft, which is pretty brutal. And I've turned more editors into dyslexics than I care to mention because they go through too many of my drafts and they start becoming dyslexic themselves. Um, so Proofreading is not easy. It's it's very it's it's you know kind of overrated. I mean underrated. Right. That you know having somebody proofread your stuff. It's a thankless job. That's you know you're not mentioned you you know in any kind of marquee. Yeah. You know it's it. I think good editing, and it's it's something that I really work on, is working with good editors. Like I said, my wife is my first editor, and she is the most brutal critic of my work ever. But she's, and we've taken years to not have it hurt feelings, but I still get my feelings hurt. Um, but she continually will go, you can write this better. That's a cliche. Get it the fuck out of here. You can write this better. This sounds awkward. So I'm forced to rewrite, and I think, in the editorial process is where you really hone a book. 
that's where a book gets great. When I hear people that go, oh, my first draft is what I send out, I think, oh, you aren't me, because I don't. I've gone through five or six drafts before anyone even sees it, just to get something that makes some sense to me and that reads well. So I think it's, in, I think the editorial process and your proofreaders and your editors help you make a book that works. I will, you know, I've, on every one of the books, I hire my own editor as well to work with me because I need that. I need outside opinions. You get so meshed down in the trees, you can't see the forest, and you need someone to go, yeah, I'm sitting up here looking at the forest, and you took a wrong turn back there. You know, so I think that's vital. And I've gotten to work on the later stuff. I get to work with guys like, you know, Tommy Pluck, who's really freaking smart. I've worked with him, so I've worked with some writers groups as well to sort of send the books out and get some opinions. So that by the time I get it finished, it isn't, it's been vetted by enough people that I think I've got something, you know. So if you were teaching new newbie writers, you know, it doesn't matter what age you are. I don't want to say young writers because yeah. that's not accurate. Just, um, writers of, of any age who aren't as published yet. And, you know, what sort of, other wisdom like you know not maybe not everybody is in the position to hire an editor um um what the first thing and i i i this is like key to how i work the first thing is to write and write and write and write and recognize that that I originally, when I wrote screenplays and got paid to do some screen doctoring and did that, and I've been writing since I was, I think I wrote my first play when I was in the second grade. So I've been writing my whole life, but I wasn't very good at it. And when I decided to move into fiction, I spent a year writing a story every week. And the way I would do that is I had a bag full of names, all these baby names that I like. I'd pull out two names, put them on the cork board, and then I'd write a story about them. And say, that's what I'm going to write this week. Nobody will ever see those stories because they're crap. But what I learned was my craft. I learned how to do it by writing a hell of a lot of words. And near the end, they started to not be total crap. So that's one thing is to write, 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 write. But that's how we get good at this craft. Um, I have some techniques that I do that I do with young writers and or inexperienced writers. I teach a few workshops every once in a while. And one of the things that I do is something called word vomit. Yeah, I've, I've heard of this. This is good. It's where you sit and you do, you set a timer and you set it for two minutes. And for two minutes or whatever it is, whatever amount of time turns out right to you, but two minutes is what I do. And, and for two minutes, I write every word without allowing them to form a sentence. So every time they start to form a sentence, I throw a nonsense and just stream of consciousness as fast as I can write. And it frees your brain up and gets the editor to shut up for a little while, which is really the as much as I love editorial and think it's important, it has nothing to do with first draft. It'll kill you in first draft if the editor starts getting involved. So I do that, and then I look through all those words and I find a title somewhere in there. And some of the stuff in my memoir is from this process. I, you know, I find suddenly there's a title that says "Baby Boy Gone Crazy," comes out of all this gibberish. And I, so I, then I sit down with that name, Baby Boy Gone Crazy, and think, okay, what do I write? What's the story that goes? And I just start writing, and I write as fast as I can, as hard as I can for 20 minutes. And 
what I found out of that is that it just shuts the brain up and is really a good energizing way to get writing. When I'm feeling stuck, when I feel like ah, I don't feel like writing today. <laughs> and you have to, you admit that you have those days. Oh, hell yes. Yeah. I think I'm just going to send all my stuff to your wife. Yeah, I think it's the way to go. <laughs> it, sounds like, it sounds like a good plan. I would. I think she's, she's sort of missed her calling and not being an editor for other writers. I've actually suggested she work with some other writers because she's, she's able to see what I'm doing and understand the voice of the writer. And so she doesn't fuck with your voice. She gets clear where you can do better, where you're stepping out of your voice. I don't know if you sort of have talked about, uh, you know, finding your voice. With the Moses books, I really, it's why there was the first time I found my voice and I thought it was something worth putting out there and sending to people. Well, I haven't talked about it on the air, but Tommy and I talked about that and Dwayne and I have talked about that um, privately because um, it's not necessarily something that you hear or at least that I can remember hearing in a classroom. Maybe in one of my creative writing classes somebody mentioned it, but I... I don't recall hearing that until more recently socializing with you guys. Yeah, it's, it's our deepest secret. <laughs> yeah, because, well, it was something, because Dwayne said something about, oh, you have a really good voice, and clearly I'm not a singer, so he didn't mean that. Um, and I, I was like, okay. I'm like, I, uh, you, you know, like, I, I, I was kind of stuck. Like, okay, okay. I don't know what to do with that. Well, yeah, it's. There is a point when you've read some writing by somebody where if they're good, they start to have a voice and you can tell it's theirs, whether they're writing in any genre, you can tell it's their work because you know, they have a distinct way of putting words together and a distinct way of thinking about the world. And, they're being, and I think the more honest you are as a writer, the more honest about without trying to pretend, you know, the most deadly thing in the world is a writer trying to pretend there's something they're not. There's here's an example, and I hope I won't piss anybody off too bad, but um, Dan Brown is a fucking hack, okay? And here's why. Dan Brown wrote this book, A Da Vinci Code. Dan Brown wrote it ostensibly pretending that he's a feminist. It's about feminist ideas. He's got, mm -hmm. he's got this great female code breaker he brings in, and the female character spends the entire book watching the male character solve problems, and she's there to witness his brilliance. And I went, well, I mean, the lead character is the man. Yeah, the lead character is a man, but he brings in this other woman to try and be the coach. I just figured it was a, had to be there for, like, you know, tension, love interests. You know, just there has to be a counterbalance. That's all I thought that was. Yeah, no, I, if he had not made her, the reason that he brought her in is she's supposed to be the one who can solve all these puzzles. Uh-huh. And she didn't solve any of them. He solved them. So for me, it was just, that's what I didn't like. And I don't, because I don't think it was honest. And I think if he was honest, I write as honest as I know how to write. And I don't really give a shit what people think about me when they read my books. If I did, I wouldn't write them. You know, because I think, oh, someone will think I'm a sexist. Someone will think I'm this. Someone will think I'm that. And you won't find your voice unless you're writing from an honest position, I don't believe. How does that differ from the authors who use a different name for a different branding purpose for a different series, because there's um, my, one of my favorite mystery writers is Susan Wittig Albert. But when she's writing her other series, she uses a different name. That's, that's has 
for me, much less to do with with um, with writing process and more to do with marketing. I understand marketing a brand. If I was to write a kid's story, I would have to do it under another name because nobody who knows my work would let a kid read my books. So Right. I, I wondered why that suddenly became author branding as opposed to the publisher imprint. You know, like if there was a Josh Stallings book, but it was published by Scholastic, I would have different expectations. Yeah, that's true. I, I think I, – I, I mean, it's exactly what you're saying. It, it definitely is for marketing, but I, I just wonder why that happened as opposed to the publishers being having that responsibility. I'm not sure outside of our world, outside of the writer's world, that readers care about who published what. I don't know if they even track it. I don't think they track movie studios. I think they track directors. I think they track writers. They track actors. It's only true in comics. I don't think I don't think it's true in in fiction. I think it's only true in comics. Yeah, it's very true. Like I, you can tell a comic publisher because they have such very strongly different worlds. And the fans can be very insane about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, that is a, that is a a whole other world. Yeah. Because readers don't, readers don't get it. it. There's some of the indie presses they get attra- attached to, like, um, oh, now it just slipped right out of my brain. I like Dark Horse um, and Image. And... Who did Charles A. Uh, Adias, what is, their, what is that book company that put out new copies of pocketbooks? Hardcase? Uh, Hardcase. Hardcase is one of the few publishers that I actually track the publishers. I buy books that they put out because I knew what their flavor was. Yeah. I think they, they did, um, if I'm not mistaken, they uh, published Krista Faust, yeah, right? Yeah, they did. Because I just finished Money Shot. What did you think? It was good. It, it took um, – it basically re- took different turns than I was expecting because, I, I mean, I – vaguely familiar with her through Tommy. And um, I I know that she is very supportive of uh, sex industries and she's very sex positive in general and she's a staunch feminist, which is great. And I didn't know where she was taking this character, Angel Dare, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, what was she going to... And it just, it did feel like, you know, like a lot of these other crime books, I feel like I'm stuck in the 80s. <laughs> I feel like, <laughs> like every, like every character, no matter what you do to them, if you know, these main characters are tortured to like, if it was a video game, you'd be, you know, you'd have less than a hit point and you'd need your mage to come over and resurrect you or something. Like there's no... I, all of the main characters feel sort of feel stuck in the 80s that they are just completely abused and violated and tortured and there's gunshots, everybody's shot and everybody's welded in the head. And if this was, you know, even similar, like, I mean, we talk about football players having, having huge concussive injuries and these are people that are just getting shot and stuffed in trunks, um, you know, and it was, it was great though that, uh, Angel, her character that she goes through, um, you know, she thinks she has this, she thinks she has a couple people that are close to her. She has a couple trusted people and it's like, no, can't trust anybody. And it's just, it's it's like Dr. House. Everybody lies. (laughs) Yeah. 
I, that's interesting, that thing about crime writing and beating your character to hell. I'm not quite sure what that is, but it is part of, particularly hard-boiled, part of the genre. It is, but, you know, like, the the shows, the, old, the TV shows that I like, you know, things like Murder, She Wrote and Columbo, uh, those PIs or detectives or cops or whatever, they're not necessarily getting the shit kicked out of them. I mean, on, on Castle... There's they have some moments where Kate gets pretty beat up. She gets she has some very physical moments and she gets shot and everything. So, but other than that, like I can't remember Columbo going through any of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, I agree. <laughs> you know, I don't. And somewhere along the line, though, characters had to had to become unkillable. They had to. It was always raising the stakes. Every every chapter, and you had to raise another stake. And at some point, I'm going, you're going to run out of stakes. <laughs> we may have. I, I Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, you know, like, we could send Moses off to space and fight aliens and raise some more stakes. No, I, 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 in the third book, I raised him so high, I don't know if he survives it, but, um, and I won't tell you until you read it, but it's whether he survives it or not is really up for grabs when I sat down to write the book. And I thought, I don't know if he's going to make it through this one. Well, I have to say the books are, are like big time on sale for the Kindle editions right now. They're like four bucks. Yeah. Go get them. Yeah. Come on. So go, go get them. <laughs> get all of them. Get all. And, and mind you, he's put out three of the Moses McGuire books and I am not on the cover of any of them yet. I know. Are you done with three, or are you, are you starting a new series? What's going on? I'm I. Uh, the last book I wrote is a standalone book, which I've sent off to this wonderful agent, and we'll see if she wants to pick it up and what we want to do with it. Um, the last one is takes place in a heist in a '70s and a disco, and I wrote it particularly because I was so beat up after writing the last Moses book. I wanted to write something lighter, more fun. Mm-hmm. And a book where people didn't get beat the hell out of them. So, you like it? <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. I had to lower the body count, and I had I just needed something where I wasn't so freaking angry. Because it was, you know. Yeah, the most of the material is heavy. Yeah. It's, it's pretty heavy. It's, but it's the nature of the material. It needs to be. It is. And, I mean, you know, it's trigger heavy um, as far as I mean like disclaimers about the content if you couldn't figure that out already um, but yeah, I don't know everybody's everybody's trigger sensitivity is different yeah um, but one of the the things that's interesting you know it, it, because even these unkillable characters they're so isolated they have, you know, they they don't necessarily have much family or, you know, or it's always, you know, down on their luck, divorced, you know, probably dead child somewhere in their past. Um, they, you know, when I was talking about the dog, it's you've acknowledged that these people are capable of having loving feelings. And, you know, this book, The Beautiful Naked and Dead, opens up with... Moses' best friends being horribly murdered. And he ends up partnering up with her sister throughout the, you know, the rest of the book. 
and they sort of become an item more by circumstance. Yeah. And you don't know if he's playing her just enjoying a warm body or if she's playing him as killing time to keep her safe, to get her to wherever her next goal is, her, her next pit stop. Um, and I, I was, I couldn't determine for myself if either of them had real feelings. You want my opinion of it? <laughs> yes. Yes, I would like to know the God's opinion, the God who created them. My my opinion, and I don't know what the book's out there whether my opinion matters any more than anyone else's, to be honest. Because um, now they're living, breathing people in a book. I'm just a, right. I'm just the guy who witnessed it and wrote it down. Uh, sure, and it could, you know, different readers could have different yeah. experiences, totally. But my feeling is that they're both so damaged and broken going into this in their views of relationships and all that they care about each other to the depth of their own ability. And their ability is with her is rather is shallow, but she does care about him to that depth. And he cares about her. And, and the series through the series is also one of the things I'm playing with throughout three books is him getting more and more in touch with what he wants out of somebody and that it's okay to find somebody closer to his own age. It's okay to find, you know, cause she's a sweet little thing. And that's very easy and convenient when you're a big, tough guy. But she's not very challenging for him. And so there's, but in this book, I really believe he cares about her to the depth that he's capable. And he does care about her. But I think he was ultimately in love with his best friend. Yeah. I mean, there's the problem is that he's in love with somebody she's not who happens to look like her. Yeah. And that's confusing in its own self. Her, on the other hand, I think is so is broken in such a way that she uses men for what she needs them for and cares about them for the depth she's capable of inside of the boundaries of needing to use him. And she needs to use him if she's going to survive. But I don't think any of that is either shallow or I don't think of her as a shrew or I don't think of her as a classical femme fatale just there to destroy him. I think that she is to the best of her ability trying to be the best person she knows how to be, but because of circumstances, it ain't that great a person. Which is sort of my key with all of these. I think Moses is a fucked up guy, but he's the best guy he knows how to be. It's it's what interests me in hard-boiled writing is it's about characters that are really screwed up, who the ones that I care about are these screwed up characters that are trying as hard as they know how to be to be a good person. I think very few do this well because um, when I was uh, talking about how it sort of reminded me of the opening from Lethal Weapon, that series, there were four movies, I think, out. And as he sort of heals a little bit with each one and then to the point where he's then he's moved on and now he's got this healthy, stable job and healthy relationships, you know, he's made friends, he's dating, he gets married, whatever. And they keep the buddy cop funny side there and everything, but they made him boring. (laughs) And I think that's a hard, uh, it's got to be hard. It's got to be hard. It was more like, we know that we're going to make a a billion dollars out of this. We're just going to do it and just keep making 
um, you know, making him better and better, more likable. And and a likable person doesn't mean that the character is likable because that's a lot of people complain about Superman and say Superman's boring. Um, but like one of my uh, one of the series that I used to really like um, was Clive Cussler's Dirk Pitt series, and I started that with Sahara and went forward which was different than anybody who had started at the beginning because one time I thought, oh, I really like these books. Let me go back. My father had all of them, so I have this like gigantic box full of books. I went back to the first one and tried reading it, and he is a very different character when this, this series starts out, and I literally hated him so much I put the book down and I said, no, this is not my character. This is not the character I'm in love with, no. <laughs> and I was just like, nope, we're going to pretend nothing before Sahara happens. <laughs> <laughs> you must read very fast because those are fat books no I just you know uh, I think I started reading Sahara on a flight I think I bought it in an airport okay. um, no I read very very slowly I tend to judge books by their fatness when I read thin books it's hard boiled yeah I, I prefer smaller books that's why like the, the Harry Potter books just got out of control for me I mean I enjoyed them I love the Harry Potter universe but I think the books got unwieldy yeah I agree. I agree. I don't need a thousand pages or eight hundred pages. Give me two, three hundred pages. I'm happy. <laughs> Hard boiled crime is that way. It, yeah. It comes in two, two fifty. That's a good size for me. It is. You know, it's reasonable. It's you get you get a, a whole story out of it. Um. You know, and I think actually, I think I think shorter formats, you know, have this. I don't know. It's like it, it's that stepchild you don't really acknowledge. Like, oh, they're trying so hard with that short story. You know, like we were talking about, you know, how I was submitting to magazines and stuff. And it's like, you know, it, it's hard to get a full story in 4,000 words. Yeah. It, and, you know, there's plenty of people that try. <laughs> there's plenty of magazines out there, plenty of anthologies out there. It is a different art form. It's a... it. The ones that I've liked the best, the one of them turned into a novel, um, the ones I've written. And But what I think in a short story is so much when they work, a novel to me has to feel at the end like there's somehow, I've got a catharsis and it's sewed up in some way. I don't want it all sewed up, but I want it sewed up in a way that I'm comfortable, that I can go, oh, that was a worthwhile experience. A short story needs to feel like there's a lot going to happen after the last word. That like there's a bigger universe, there's a story that's going to go on, that this thing has got, I'm just, I'm coming in for this one little moment, and there's all these things beforehand and all these things afterwards that are going to go on and flush it out for me. And so that's the big difference for me is those, if a novel leaves me feeling like there's a lot more left on it, then I'm going, but I spent three weeks reading this. Yeah. You you invest more of your life, that's for sure. Yeah. Right. And, and especially if it's a series, you know, you're asking people to to love Moses enough for three books. Yeah. Please. He's a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's a thug with a heart of gold. <laughs> big goon. Yeah. Don't know anybody like it. <laughs> Not at all. Total fiction. Uh, total fiction. That's it. So what other writers do you like? 
Um, well, I, I had started reading and I don't really know cause it's a little, it's a little too, you know, I sort of have to clear my brain. I started reading Karen Slaughter's Cop Town, which just came out. Um, and it's like seventies, you know, women on the police forces for the first time and racism everywhere. And, and they're, you know, so it's about a, a, a the death of a cop and I'm like, okay, I've kind of been in this hard boiled world for a while now. So I've got, you know, I'm a few chapters into Cop Town and I'm like, God, I don't, I don't know. My, my brain would like some cotton candy right now. <laughs> so as far as, you know, and I, right before that, I had just finished your, your book and, uh, uh, Chuck Wendig's books, of course. I, and I've have to use Audible because I have a really long drive. So a lot of the books that I get are actually Audible. And uh, Chuck's Blackbird series, so I made it through two. Because the first one, I was like, I was like right there. It's like the first one, I'm like, okay, this has got a little bit too much gore. I'm only on the verge of feeling a little bit sick. By the second book, I was like, I need to pull over. I'm going to throw up. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm like, the things he is doing to these to these characters and it's I mean it's brilliantly put together because he he has like this you know psycho who's like singing chanting singing folk song and it's creepy and you know and again his his character his main character is female and yet she is a completely unkillable I mean she's thrown across rooms stabbed shot you know concussed and um completely unkillable and you and and she's just this you know drinking hard doesn't trust anybody kind of chick and you you know for some reason like you if i imagine if you met her you'd think oh my god i do not have the patience for your you know cold-hearted bitchy attitude You know, your little <laughs> punk rock attitude needs to move the fuck on. But as a, but as a character, there's something that you have to love about Miriam. Yeah. Like you just you don't know what it is. You just love her. But, um, you know, so by the second book, I'm like, so I, I was like, Chuck, I don't know if I can. Can I handle the third book? He's like, I don't think you can handle the third book. <laughs> <laughs> She's honest about it. Thank God. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to read Blue Blazes. Much better. Much more my speed. Supernatural shit under Newark. I'm there. Oh, I'm like, yeah, you got your paranormal mafia, I'm like gold. That's it. I'm happy. Have you read Chris Holmes? No, no. He has a, he has a series called the Collector Series. Okay. That's about a guy who comes up from the depths to collect souls that don't make it. People who forget, and he's got a he's a soul collector. So it's hard boiled, but it's hard boiled, hard boiled fantasy. Okay. Urban fantasy, I guess. Urban it is. fantasy. Is it whatever the kids are calling whatever it? Whatever the kids are calling it. <laughs> Chris is such a goddamn good writer. He floored me with his short stories, and when his first novel came out, I'm just so amazed with how good he is. Like he's just one of those guys you read it and go, "Damn, this guy knows how to put together a sentence." So he's amazing. I love I love when you can read somebody and you feel like you're learning. Yeah. Like you don't know. I mean, you don't feel like it's an education or anything, but you're just like, ah, oh, yeah, that's how you do it. I want to do that. He wrote a short story about a noise in a in the eaves of a house. A couple that buy a house and there's a noise in the eaves, and they keep trying to do things, thinking they're squirrels. There's something else in there. 
It has stuck with me for three years now. It is that creepy. That's good. Oh, God. Yeah, that's good. And it's and there's nothing in it gory, and there's nothing in it that you go, he didn't play any shock cards. He just is so good that by the end of it, I was so creeped out that I couldn't get it out of my head. So he's really good. I have, um, because my my memory sucks pretty bad, too. I actually write down, um, I decided to write down the stuff that I was going through this year. So that way, by the end of the year, when I could do my look back, I'd have a a much better understanding. Um, and Audible, one of the things that I do on Audible is I, you know, talking about like just having cotton candy for my brain. I like memoirs. Mm-hmm. And so I've read a, a few good ones like uh, Moshi Kasher, Moshe, I think is how you pronounce it, Kasher. Um, he's a an actor and stand-up comedian. And his book is called Kasher in the Rye. And when he was a young punk kid in uh, LA in like the shittiest, poorest neighborhood and stuff. He he grew up as a Jewish kid going to like the black kids school, you know, like you were saying. Yeah. And yet his father was, his parents had split up and his father was exceptionally Jewish. So sometimes he would have to go and live with his father and go off to Jewish school. And it was just like, I don't fit in here either. And, you know, and he ended up, you know, very depressed and you know a thug kid you know constant mischief drugs stealing gin from the liquor store uh what is about gin i didn't acquire a taste for gin until i was 40 <laughs> um <laughs> no, these young kids and gin it's just nuts um you know so you know they would take every kind of pill that there was and just you know kids being pains in the asses or whatever and then eventually after like his his eighth time going through rehab or whatever, he finally actually goes through, and all of a sudden he's applying to college, and he's you know holding down jobs, and it's just like this miraculous thing. And he was like all of like all of this shit that he went through, you know, like being locked up in asylums and everything, like before he was even seventeen years old. And uh, so that was that was one of those books that I was just like, God, I love this. And then and his stand up is on Netflix. I highly recommend it because you would never think to look at it at him that that was his history because he looks like this metrosexual, uh, you know, rich white boy. And, you know, and, he's, and he wasn't. Moshe? M-O-S-H-E. Okay. And it's Kasher, K-A-S-H-E-R. And uh, yeah, but I mean, I've listened. So I've listened to a couple other memoirs that I really like: Rachel Rachel Dratch and Tina Fey, um, Nora Ephron. I just I just finished one of hers because she has a couple out, and uh, and interesting actually because uh, Nora Ephron died a, a few years ago. Her sister was one of the speakers at the Mystery Writers Workshop oh. that I was just at. Yeah. And she was delightful. Like, I mean, she's one of those things where, you you know, she just looks – you know that they sort of, like, come from all of this Hollywood money and everything. And you wouldn't know that to, to just look at her. And she just – you know, she looked like the sort of person that would have been, you know, your seventh-grade English teacher. <laughs> and she was just – you know, she was hilarious and personable. And I just felt like, you know, I could just, like, bump into this woman and go ask her out for coffee. <laughs> So let me just so I understand this. You've read all these nobodies who I've never heard of, Tina Fey. I don't know who the fuck that is. And you haven't read that Josh Stallings bio? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. His memoir is so much cooler. 
Is it on Audible? No. See, I just interview you. I'm getting my own version of it. <laughs> I'm making my own. Would you like me to read it into a mic- into a microphone and then send you a copy? Yes. <laughs> yes, I would. My birthday's coming up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this this should happen. All right, I'm putting it together right now. All right, I expect you to. Um, oh, but I did. I did get something about Chandler too, even though it wasn't a Chandler book. It was somebody. This woman, Judith Freeman, did all this research on Raymond Chandler and his wife, and wrote this incredible book because apparently he was bizarre. He would just pick up and move every six months, and so she like tried to figure out like every single residence he ever had, and she basically like made this tour, this Raymond Chandler world. And, uh, you know, and you learn quite a bit about, about his wife, too. That's how I'd like to read that. I've, I, I, had, I had this talk with my mother about growing up feeling insecure. And I said, you know, we moved a lot. And she said, we didn't move that often. I did the math, and by the time I left home, I left home at 16, I lived in 18 homes. Oh, my God. That's moving a fucking lot, if you ask me. My mother would say, yeah. we didn't move that often. I, and I just did the math and went, that's often. <laughs> That is. I remember you wouldn't put you wouldn't take things out of boxes because you figure, well, we're gonna be moving soon. Just gonna move again. That's when you don't own anything that doesn't fit in your car. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard I've heard of people who are like that. I was that way when I was younger, I, and I felt nervous when we got more things than I could fit in my car. And I would say that I said I'm getting nervous. And then when you have two kids, you realize you have so much shit you'll never fit in any car, and you better just settle in. Yeah. That's, yep. Children. I mean, children. They will mess you up. Make you settle down. <laughs> well, <laughs> that took adulthood. I, you know, I had kids at at twenty one and I twenty one, twenty two. I don't remember which somewhere right in there. And I didn't stop drinking until thirty two. So that'll tell you there was some years when I was not the best dad. I was a. Well, that's good of you to admit. Yeah. Not many would. It's you know. Because, you know, you're like you you have you give Moses an excuse and you say, well, he did the best he could. You're not giving yourself an excuse. You're saying, nope, I wasn't. Yeah, I don't cut myself the slack. I cut my character. And the same way Moses doesn't cut himself slack. I cut him slack. Yeah. Which is part of that trying to be the best person you can be. All right. Shout outs. Are you ready? Yes. These are writers that should be read and aren't as much. Pierce Hansen wrote a book called Street Raid. Fucking awesome. Ian Aris wrote a book, probably that's A-Y-R-I-S, wrote a book called Abide With Me, which is about a kid growing up in England that is about one of the best books I've read. Blows me away. Thomas, Tom Pluck, Thomas Pluck. Yeah. Love his writing, and he's got, the collection that I love the best is Danny the Dent. He's got a collection out of the Danny the Dent stories. Okay. I don't know if you read them, but they're just amazing. Not those. I have the Protect Anthology, and I have his novel, um, Blade of Dishonor. Blade of Dishonor, which is great, too. The Danny the Dent one speaks to me because i got a special needs son, and it's about a guy who's marginally damaged and who's just an amazing character. Jedediah Ayers. Yeah, yeah, I follow this. I follow this person, oh. and I do not have their work. He's good. 
he's good. He's got a uh, couple novels out, quite good. And his first book out was a collection of shorts called Buckload of Shorts. <laughs> and you got a <laughs> Very nice. Okay, that's my shout-outs. <laughs> Those are your shout-outs. Um, yeah, so Krista Faust, if you like things vulgar and sexy. Yeah. Um, let's see, uh, Chuck Wendig, as I said, um, let me, let me, let me crack open my, my list again of, uh, let's see, uh, oh, I, Lawrence Block, I just, uh, for the first time got through one of those burglar books. Those are good. Yeah. So that was way more my speed. I was, I was very happy with that. Um, and uh, of course, lots of comics and lots of nonfiction I've got. So depends on what you're in the mood for. Just um, if you, what was that? I can just ring you up and say I'm in the mood for this, and you'll tell me what to read. Yeah, yeah, that could it could be. I might have an answer for you. Sweet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and if you like, you know, if, actually, if people do like um, the really supernatural stuff. One of the books that I read um, is the author is Michael Boatman and it's called last God standing. And it's God is uh, goes through one of his reincarnation cycles. And he's, uh, I think it's, I think it's set in Chicago, I want to say, or Detroit and uh, is trying to like leave his dad's like tractor business whatever he had some kind of like business he's trying to get get out of you know working for his dad to become a stand-up comedian so god's having kind of a rough time and he has a girlfriend that he wants to propose to and meanwhile the apocalypse starts happening oh, fuck. <laughs> so, so it's a pretty wild ride but people might know michael boltman as an actor uh he was a, he started in sin city and he is more known, apparently, for the kind of fiction that I would never touch, the splatter porn, like just gory beyond words. So I didn't know that. And thankfully, Last God Standing was not like that at all. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, all these different gods come together and they have, you know, sort of like the different embodiments and stuff. And it's really funny because they, you know, it it's acknowledging that that sort of Santa Claus vibe, like if you believe in it, it exists kind of a thing. So there's, you know, so there's a medicine woman who, you know, guides him. And then there's the Bridget from Ireland and, you know, all this cool stuff. And it all comes together in one crazy kind of book. It is, it does go kind of out there once in a while and needs to be reined in a little, but not bad, not bad for, you know, someone that's not known for their writing. I like it. Yeah. All right. Well, Josh, this has like been an awesome amount of time with you. Oh, thank you. This is wonderful. You're just the coolest of the cool. Thank you. When I heard so, so now I'm one of the cool kids that I've been on your podcast. That's what it really takes. It should, and see, then the next time we're hanging out, people will be lining up to shake my hand instead. Thank you. Yeah, as well they should. <laughs> And if you bring me a sidecar when you come meet me, I will like you even more. A sidecar? Uh, a sidecar is my favorite cocktail. <laughs> I thought I had to get one on a motorcycle. I thought, God, that's no. a hell of a lot of work just to impress someone. <laughs> Doesn't that? That would seem really odd. Nope. If it's right in a nice little martini glass. Okay. Good. 
It's good. Um, so, so we've got beautiful, naked, and dead out there. Bad. One more body. All the wild children. Um, so the first three are the Moses McGuire books, and hopefully something soon. Hopefully that agent uh, picks that up for you. Yeah, we will see what happens with that. And I'm and I'm working on a new one. So what the hell? I never stop. That's really awesome. Um, and and like I said, these the the Kindle versions of them are 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 crazy on sale right now. So go look up Josh Stallings. And where can they find you online to find out more? JoshStallings.net. www.stallings.net is my website. Okay. And it's got me. Or you can Google me and I show up all over the place now. I have a web footprint or whatever the fuck it is you're supposed to have. I don't know what that is. I don't know. Some agent said I need to have a web footprint. I don't know what it means, but I think I got one. (laughs) <laughs> you know what? You know, one of the things that I wanted to, uh, to, uh, I, it sounds like I'm not speaking in words, but I, I swear I am. <laughs> um, when I was looking up all of the author web pages that from the authors who had taught at this workshop, uh-huh. um, only certain ones impressed me with okay you've got a nice website i'm liking this you have reviews you have interviews you have the books in their own place um what they certain ones had and you don't but you at least have a photo it is important to have the photo and i know like a lot of people are just artist types are all like no i i think my work should speak for itself no screw that people want to know you they want to know who you are so your author pages should have photos of you that the press can download and use for publicity purposes. And, uh, true that, true that. And, and, you know, images of your book covers, which you have very easily, which is great. Yeah. I, um, cause I have a footprint. Okay. There you go. <laughs> and I, and I'm assuming you didn't design your website. No, it was or, done by web vamos. I think some okay. friends out here. All right. All right, Josh. Well, thanks again, and I hope uh, your, you know, summer is wonderful. You as well, and I hope to see you at one of these damn conventions. I hope so. I don't think I'm making it to Long Beach. A, I don't think that's going to be possible. That's a long ass haul. I get it. It is. It is. But you know, if you're in the Philly area, that's pretty damn sure. I would never pass that up. I am going to try and do a New York Noir Bar at some point. Okay. Well, you know what? They do that shit on Tuesday night or something. Oh, fuck. I got I to gotta get up at 5.30 in the morning. See, in L.A., we're civilized. We do it on a Sunday night. That's still a work day. In San Francisco, we did it on a Saturday night. Would that help? Well, that, yeah. that Yeah, you, you did two on that day. You did, it was, I was just like, man, why can't I fly out there just for that? Yeah, those are fun. Yeah, I do, I do, I do want to go to a noir in the bar, but um, yeah, hopefully people can manage some sort of ad hoc version that's not on a weekday. I'll, I'll get Tom Pluck on that, okay? Yeah, I appreciate that. We'll just do it here. Just oh, hell fly, yeah. Just fly in and we'll meet at my place. Alright. Done. <laughs> Done. Uh, awesome. And so, you know, you can, of course, you follow me on Twitter. I do? Right. Of course you do. Hell yeah. So everybody else should be following me at Elizabeth Amber. And check out the new design website at amberunmasked.com. And um, enjoy the work of Josh Stallings. All right, Don. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks.